and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Wonderful. It's been a lovely Saturday. Yeah. I ran some errands. I spent too much money. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, it was great. It happens. Yeah, it happens. I mean, I bought stuff I needed. Yeah. Which is important. <laughs> a pair of Dr. Scholl's flats. Because I'm an old lady now and I don't wear my heels. No. So, but they're very comfy. Um, have you read I'll Be Gone in the Dark yet by Michelle Mac- McNamara? I have not. I okay. have not been able to get my hands on it. Oh, it's, I have it on Kindle. Oh, I do would, you? Yeah, you would loan it to me, but I, would I don't loan have it a Kindle. To you, but yeah, so basically, if you like true crime and you haven't been living under a rock, yeah. um, at the end of April, after decades and decades, mm-hmm. um, the police in California caught the Golden State Killer. Which was astounding. Astounding. Yes. Like, it, they ha- he had not been caught for 40 years. No one had any idea who the yeah. hell he was. Mm-hmm. The book it, is so well written. Is so it? Michelle McNamara, um, she passed away before she finished writing the book. Yeah. And then so she, there were some researchers that worked along with her that finished it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and her husband, Patton Oswalt, helped um, with a little bit of that too. And it's so well written and it's, um, it's very engaging. Like, I didn't want to yeah. put it down at all. So I definitely recommend that book. Um, and it's really great now that there kind of is a conclusion conclusion to it yeah yeah because I heard it was terrifying because you still you know at the time when it was released no one knew if where he was or who he was all right so a lot of people I had heard some reviews that people were like it's so well written that it's actually like you should not read this at night like it's awful yeah I yeah. don't tend to read scary things at night anyway. Yeah, so um, that wasn't my problem. But <laughs> yeah, what's really interesting is in, you know, again, th- they finished the book before they caught the killer and they kept saying, you know what? We think how we're going to get this guy is DNA. Yeah. And that's what happened. That's amazing. And it um, it really got me thinking. And that's what is, has inspired my topic this week. Oh, great. Yes. So tonight we're going to be talking about Rosalind fucking Franklin and the structure of DNA. Wow, was that really her middle name? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Was, uh, <laughs> That's, that was unfortunate. It's amazing. They didn't write that like on her certificates at sure. school or anything. Did but... they do a star for the vowel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll yeah? see. Okay, so, all right. So um, before we get to Rosalind Franklin, we have to kind of, I'm going to give some background um, on DNA in science. Great. So starting with Gregor Mendel in the 19th century, um, he was an Austrian monk and he was basically the founder of the modern science of genetics. So Mendel did research um, that physical features are passed along to their offspring by discrete units, which they later called genes. Um, he did experiments with garden peas, if you if you remember like making oh, yeah, squares and mm-hmm. in biology class. Um, so he figured out that each gene determined a single characteristic such as height or color for the next generation of plant and so that's where like the you know if you did big b and little b and yep. you know all the different combinations that you could have with that yes. after him we had friedrich meischer m-i-e-s-c-h-e-r um he was a 19th century swiss scientist who was the first to isolate nucleic acid in cells and he's the one that identified deoxyribonucleic acid dna cool. um <laughs> And then a little bit after him, the term genome was created in 1920 by Hans Winkler, who was a professor of botany at the University of Hamburg in Germany. 
After him, we have Phoebus Levine. Phoebus Levine. Phoebus Levine, American biochemist. So he characterized the different forms of the nucleic acid that were isolated by Meischer. So um, he also isolated DNA from RNA, and he found out that DNA contained adenine, guanine, thymine, cytosine, deoxyribose, and a phosphate group. So Levine is known for his tetronucleotide hypothesis, say that a couple times you. fast, uh, which first proposed that DNA was made up of equal amounts of adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. Okay. So um, it kind of seemed too simple to carry the complex instructions required to specify the form of each of the infinite variety of cells that yeah. constitute living matter. Like, so when they first started studying this, they were like, oh... I mean, like that stuff, it, it couldn't possibly like be what the answer is. They instead, everybody was kind of focusing on the protein component of chromosomes because okay. they thought that the protein was the basis of heredity. So most of the research of the physical nature of genes focused on proteins, particularly enzymes and viruses before the 1940s. So so was it that it seemed too simple where yeah. they were like, they, this couldn't possibly be because that's too simple of a solution. Yeah. Let's go with something more complex like they, proteins. They knew that DNA and RNA were things. Okay. Uh, and proteins were also part of what created, you know, what made up the chromosomes. And they were like, oh, those things are, those couldn't possibly be. It. Yeah. So they were focusing on the other. Interesting. Yeah. Sometimes it's when you hear hoofbeats. Yeah. Think horses, not zebras. It's the is simplest. That a thing? Yeah, it is. Actually, in, <laughs> apparently, like if you watch a lot of medical procedures, it gets mentioned at least once. Um, it's like the simplest solution is the most common solution. Like, don't yeah. think too complex. Occam's razor. Yeah, Occam, it's Occam's razor, but for I guess medical professionals. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is like the like the 1940s. We still don't really understand what makes chromosomes. Yeah. But okay. they but they were getting there. Yeah, they were so close. So there was Oswald Avery. Um, he was a Canadian-American molecular biologist and medical researcher. Um, he was at the Rockefeller Institute on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and he hypothesized that the transforming principle, um, basically the carrier of genetic information from old chromosomes to new chromosomes, might be the nucleic acid DNA. So um, he and his researchers published a paper in 1944 like hypothesizing this, but didn't have much fair and fair. Um, DNA seemed just like a boring binding agent for the protein in the cell. Oh, okay. And so basically the essential mystery remained. How could a monotonous substance such as DNA, like an alphabet with only four letters, convey enough specific information to produce the enormous variety of living things? That's what I'm wondering. So maybe the answer was in how the molecule was put together. What? Hmm. Huh. So along comes Erwin Chargaff. Chargaff. Um, he, Chargaff. Yep. Okay. Um, he's an Austro-Hungarian biochemist who immigrated to the U.S. from Nazi Germany. And while working at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, Chargaff was one of the very few who took Oswald Avery's results to heart. And he changed his research program as a result. So he analyzed the proportions of the four bases of DNA and found a curious correspondence Ooh. in 1950. The numbers of molecules present of the two bases called purines, that's adenine and guanine, okay. they were always equal to the total amount of the other two bases called pyrimidines, so thymine and cytosine. So this neat ratio found in all forms of DNA cried out for explanation, but Chargaff could just couldn't figure out what it might be. So oh, they're man. all, so there's, there's, 
single people like yeah. figuring out little bits and pieces and they're all just trying to put it all together oh man if only they were smarter you know <laughs> if only they were like us these days these days yes <laughs> oh. so basically the discovery of the double helix structure of molecules in the mid-20th century this is the important part sure of DNA. it is widely credited to francis crick and james watson but this breakthrough was aided by the work of many people, most sure. notably a woman by the name of Rosalind Franklin. What, what, Rosalind Franklin? Okay, so Rosalind Elsie Franklin. Her middle name isn't effing, oh. but. Well, then I'm okay. leaving. You're out. Bye. Rosalind Franklin. She was born in London in 1920. Um, she was one of five girls born into a wealthy Jewish family. She excelled at science and attended one of the very few girls' schools in London that taught physics and chemistry. Cool. Um, she decided she wanted to be a scientist at age 15, and she passed the admissions exam for Cambridge University. Wow. Except her father objected to women going to college and refused <sighs> to pay her tuition. Dad, you're ruining everything. <laughs> Uh, her aunt and mother managed to change his mind and she enrolled at Cambridge's all-female Newnham College in 1938. Uh, she later held a f graduate fellowship for a year, um, but she quit in 1942 what? to work at the British Coal Utilization Research Association, where she made fundamental studies of carbon and graphite microstructures. Really? You you can just tell she's super fun-loving. <laughs> she, she, she quit grad school to go work, go work for, for big coal. coal. Yeah. Yikes. So she wasn't... She wasn't like a sparkling personality. Um, I mean, she was really smart. Oh, no. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's she probably wasn't like a social butterfly. No, no. I mean, I shouldn't pass judgment on our dear Rosie, but you know, <laughs> do not call her that. Oh, she didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Rosalind. Rosalind. Ooh, sorry. Uh, so basically uh, all this, all the research she did with coal, um, was the basis of her doctorate in physical chemistry, which she earned from Cambridge in 1945. Then she spent three years at the Laboratoire Central des Services Chimiques de l'État in Paris, where she learned x-ray crystallography. So x-ray crystallography is a technique in which x-rays bounce off of the three-dimensional pattern of atoms within a crystal lattice to form a shadow image of its structure. What? Okay. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> So she's, all right, she's back. So yeah, x-rays, like the start of the 20th century, they got big and oh, yeah. you know, they're figuring out like how they can use this to, to look at stuff. drill down to get to the, you know, the tinier things. Yeah. So in 1951, uh, Rosalind returned to England for a new position. So it's 1951. Right. The scientist John Randall assembled a team of scientists to work on the problem of DNA at his King's College laboratory. Um, so this team included Maurice Wilkins, um, who had just left work on the Manhattan Project, Ooh. and also Rosalind Franklin, who had become renowned for her work in X-ray crystallography in Paris. Um, Wilkins had been working on X-ray diffraction, but when his research stalled, Randall assigned Rosalind Franklin and her graduate student, Raymond Gosling, to study the structure of DNA by X-ray diffraction. Okay. So when Franklin arrived, Maurice Wilkins missed the meeting in which she was introduced as a colleague. <gasps> so this led to a very important misunderstanding. Franklin was under the impression that the x-ray diffraction was her project. Sure. And Wilkins assumed that she was his assistant. No. So I guess they never talked about it. What? I don't, 
<laughs> you think that if she was a woman who was in this field and probably the only, if not one of the only women, you think that she would have gotten used to being like, no, I'm not the secretary. No, I'm not the secretary. Yeah. Like, no, I won't get you coffee. I'm actually yeah, working on this. Yeah, she was probably super sick of that. Yeah. So you think that at, at some point, especially since this project was so important, she'd be like, hey, hey, I am not your assistant. Yeah. I was specifically hired I mean, by they, name. They clash so much that they like they weren't in the same room ever together. Oh, really? Just because wow, they was that bad. Yeah. Ooh. Because of this difference of views, they didn't get along. Sure. Uh, and Franklin, she'd long been patronized for being a woman scientist. Yeah. And she preferred to work alone or with her assistant, Raymond Gosling. Yeah. I so it. Um, she experienced both overt and subtle sexism. Um, for example, only males were allowed in the university dining rooms. So she missed out on like meetings and and like just talking, networking yeah and yeah talking about work. males were allowed in the dining rooms what the hell? and then after hours their her colleagues specifically went to men only pubs instead of allowing her to join them what the what yeah like what the what oh i give so, her so much credit yeah she, i would have burned the entire got, city she got along really well with her assistant raymond Gosling. yeah they were okay. they were good they were tight so um it's still 1951 she She's doing her research, X-ray crystallography, X-ray diffraction yeah. on DNA. She presented her findings that there were two forms of DNA. At high humidity, like when the DNA was wet, okay. the fiber became long and thin. And they called this B, D, B form of DNA, like B DNA is how oh, they abbreviated okay. it. And then when it was dried, it became short and fat, which they called <laughs> ADNA. Okay. So because of the intense personality conflict developing between Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins, John Randall divided their work on DNA. Okay. So Franklin was working with the data-rich A form while Wilkins selected the B form. So Randall was like, fine, you guys you just don't, don't talk just, to each other. You work, you're still working on this problem, but you're taking this form and you're taking this yeah. form. Well, that's good. So they're at King's College in London. Okay. Okay. Meanwhile, James Watson and Francis Crick were at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, and they were also trying to determine the structure of DNA. So Watson and Crick began to suspect that DNA took a helical pattern, but they were looking into the possibility of a triple twist helix, like from what they were coming up with. Yeah. So following complaints from the King's College group that Watson and Crick were encroaching on their territory, uh, the head of the lab in Cambridge, um, his name was Lawrence Bragg, he told them to cease all work on DNA. Okay. Except at the beginning of 1953, a U.S. competitor, the scientist Linus Pauling, who was at Caltech, um, he became interested in the structure of DNA too. So Bragg also, he said, you know what, like Britain needs to be the first to figure this out. So he told Watson and Crick to like work on this problem. Again. Yeah. So basically there's three main science teams working on DNA right They're now. So you got Linus Pauling in the U.S., you got... Um, Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins not working sort of. together, but working at the same place in King's College in London. Yeah. And then you have Watson and Crick at their lab in Cambridge. So it's like a race to the finish. Basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Franklin uh, at King's College in London, she had her doubts about a helix pattern and all um, because she was doing a lot of complex math and she figured out her mathematical models did not support the theory, uh, but she didn't dismiss the possibility of it. And in May of 1952, Franklin and Gosling took an X-ray diffraction image that became known as Photograph 51. Okay. So Gosling presented the photo to Wilkins as part of his graduate work. Okay. So Wilkins was like part of the lab and yeah. he asked Gosling like what was going on and Gosling is a student and he basically showed yeah. it to him. So 
in January 1953, Wilkins shared the picture and some of Franklin's unpublished notes with James Watson Uh-oh. and Francis Crick in Cambridge without Franklin's knowledge. <gasps> So Watson recalled that when he saw the photo, which was far clearer than any other X-ray diffraction photo he had ever seen, he said, quote, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. And according to Watson, photo 51 provided the vital clue to the double helix. Uh, But despite the excitement that Watson felt, all the main issues, such as the number of strands and above all the precise chemical organization of the molecule still remained a mystery. So a glance at photo 51 couldn't necessarily shed any light on those details. Um, But what Watson and Crick needed was far more than the idea of just a helix there. They needed precise observations from the X-ray crystallography. And those numbers, the data was provided by Franklin accidentally. She um, she had included them in a brief informal report that was lent to a researcher named Max Peretz at um, Cambridge University. So in February 1953, Peretz passed the report to the head of his lab in Cambridge and therefore to Watson and Crick. So okay. Wilkins showed Watson and Crick the photograph. Uh-huh. And this other guy, Parrots, gave Rosalind Franklin's data yeah. to, wa- to Watson, Watson and Crick. And Crick. Um, so the report wasn't confidential, but they, but, you know, historians have looked back and said, there's no question that the Cambridge duo acquired the data dishonestly. They didn't tell anybody at King's College what they were doing <sighs> with the data, and they didn't ask Franklin for permission to interpret her data. Uh, that's a big no-no. Right. That's an academic. Yeah. So even if you all are working on the same problem, you're, you're all working toward the same thing. Yeah. Nobody told anybody else that they were using her numbers and they didn't ask for permission for it. I'm sure she would have like, I'm sure she she would have shared it. Yeah. We're all working on this. Yeah. Here you go. There's my notes. Yes. So this photograph, photograph 51, it provided key information that was essential for developing the model of DNA. Um, the diffraction pattern of the photo, and we'll share that on, on Facebook and Twitter for everybody if you haven't seen it before. Uh, the diffraction pattern showed the helical nature of the double helix strands. And the outside of the DNA chain has a backbone of alternating deoxyribose and phosphate molecules. As, and the base pairs, the order of which provides codes for protein building and inheritance, are inside the helix. So Watson and Crick's calculations from Franklin and Gosling photography gave crucial parameters for size and structure of the helix. Uh, Franklin's laboratory notebooks reveal that she initially found it difficult to interpret the outcome of these complex mathematics. She was basically working with like a slide roll and a pencil. You know, Um, but by February 24th, 1953, she had realized that DNA had a double helix structure and the way that the component nucleotides or bases on each strand were connected meant that the two strands were complementary, enabling the molecule to replicate. So Franklin Gosling prepared a paper in March 1953. In April 1953, the scientific journal Nature published an article by Watson and Crick's announcement of the double helix discovery. What? So their article was like very theoretical. Sure. Um, In the same issue was an article by Maurice Wilkins at the King's College Lab on DNA structure, followed by Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling's data. Oh, man. So Franklin was unaware of Watson and Crick's breakthrough before this publication, but she like accepted it, not knowing that her work had also contributed (gasps) to it. Oh, right. Oh, my God. So it was like almost kind of a coincidence that this issue of Nature in April 1953 had three articles on DNA. By all the people who were were working on it. So that was kind of... Oh, that's a bummer. That was a bummer. Um, So Franklin, she was just 33 years old at this time. 
Oh my gosh. And, what am um, I doing? The Cambridge guys, Watson was 25 no. and Crick was 37. <laughs> so like I am a useless lump of flesh. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Why? <laughs> it's, it's just like, re- I mean, it's just really interesting to think about that. Basically she's in her early thirties and came up with helped, helped. Yeah. Inform Discover this, this the, breakthrough, the literal mm-hmm. backbone of life. Yeah. As we know it. So she, you know, so she just kind of accepted this. Sure. She was unaware that her data was actually like a major part y- of Yeah, because I'm this sure theory. she knew. And um, she left King's College. Um, she went to Birkbeck College to go work on plant viruses. So she poured herself into her new research and Watson and Crick were celebrated for their discovery of DNA. <sighs> Um, according to Lynn Osmond Elkin, who is a professor of biological sciences at California State University, um, she said in two, 2003, quote, there is no way without her data that Watson and Crick could have figured out the structure before um, her draft got published. Now, if that had gotten published first and then they figured it out, remember, she talked about the double helix in a paper that she gave before. Yeah. Then even though they had figured out the actual structure, they would have had to incorporate her information and credit her properly and she would not have been written out of history. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, it's just, it's just like a bunch of ethical yeah, it's, shadiness. Yeah. That's shady academia mm-hmm. and I do not appreciate it. Exactly. So Rosalind Franklin died of ovarian cancer in 1958. Oh my gosh. Um, exposure to x-ray radiation is sometimes considered to be a possible factor in her illness. Um, throughout her brief 16-year career, uh, Franklin published steadily. There were 19 articles on coal and carbons, five on DNA, and 21 on viruses. And during her last few years, she received increasing numbers of invitations to speak at conferences all over the world. And it is likely her virus work would have earned awards and other professional recognition had she lived oh. to continue. Did you it. Um, so she died in 1958. In 1962, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded jointly to Francis Harry Compton Crick, James Dewey Watson, and Maurice Hugh Frederick Wilkins for their discovery of the structure of DNA. None of them gave Franklin credit for her <gasps> contributions at the time. Bitches. And Nobel Prizes are not awarded posthumously. So in years since, there's been a lot of debate whether Franklin would have been included in the ceremony yeah. had she lived to see it. Um, Franklin's work on DNA may have remained actually a quiet footnote in the story, uh, but Watson kind of caricatured her in his 1968 memoir, The Double what? Helix. So Watson presented Franklin as Rosie, a bad-tempered, arrogant blue stocking who jealously guarded her data from what? colleagues, even though she was, quote, not competent to interpret it. <gasps> Where is this guy? Give me your phone. You know what? I'm He's still alive. Him. Is he really? Yeah. Let's go. Watson is still alive. He was born in 1928. Still kicking. Uh, Francis Crick was 1916 to 2004. Um... And Maurice Wilkins he was 1916 to 2004 also. So the only one left only is one James left. Watson. Because, again, he was 25 when this like whole yeah, that's thing true. happened. Um, I'm mad for her. Yeah. <laughs> Watson's book was actually very popular, um, even though many of those featured in the story, including Crick Wilkins and Linus Pauling, protested Watson's treatment of Franklin, as did many reviewers. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know what? It's one thing to not give her credit, but it's another thing to literally besmeager her in yes. your memoir. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to, first of all, call her by a nickname that she would she definitely did not have hated. like it. Yeah. Call her by a nickname that she hated, and then call her arrogant, and mm-hmm. it's... 
that's call her incompetent incompetent that's bullshit yeah so in his memoir he basically you know he included the fact that yeah they had gotten this information from yeah so oh my gosh um since her death her story has been told by multiple people including her biographer and friend anna sayer um she's also had a number of academic programs auditoriums and labs named for her a 56 minute documentary of the life and scientific contributions of franklin called dna secret of photo 51 was broadcast in 2003 on pbs's nova and Anna Ziegler's play Photograph 51, first, um, which first came out in 2011, has been produced at several places in the U.S. And in late 2015, it was put on at the Noel Coward Theater in London with Nicole Kidman starring oh, as Rosalind hey. Franklin. She's a good character actress. For someone who's so yeah, sure. beautiful, she's a good character actress. Yeah, I, I mean, that. her forehead doesn't move anymore. But she put on that <laughs> and fake... she can't clap. Oh my gosh, no. Just... <laughs> but you know what? I mean, everybody has a thing. Um, but she put on that fake nose to be Virginia Woolf. She looked great. She looked just like her. <laughs> Everyone go watch. What was it? The Women? No. What was that movie where she played Virginia Woolf? The Hours. The Hours. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So I've talked about basically all the all the scientists involved in it. Okay. So just what is DNA? Ready? Yeah. What is DNA, Julia? What is DNA? Uh, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is a molecule that contains the instructions an organism needs to develop, live, and reproduce. These instructions are found inside every cell and are passed down from parents to their children. DNA is made up of molecules called nucleotides, and each nucleotide contains a phosphate group, a sugar group, and a nitrogen base. And the four types of nitrogen bases are adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. So they're all abbreviated by their like first letter. So A, T, G, and C. The order of these bases is what determines DNA's instructions or genetic code. Okay. Um, Human DNA has about 3 billion bases and more than 99% of those bases are the same in all people, according to the U.S. National Laboratory of Medicine. Um, Nucleotides are attached together to form two long strands that spiral to create a structure called a double helix. And if you think of the double helix structure as a ladder, uh, the phosphate and sugar molecules are the sides and then the bases are the rungs of the ladder. So the bases on one strand pair with the bases on another strand. So adenine always pairs with thymine and guanine always pairs with cytosine so they come so they're like connect in the middle yes. type thing yep. so it's like okay great yes <laughs> uh, dna molecules are long too okay so to fit inside cells dna is coiled tightly to form structures that we call chromosomes each chromosome contains a single dna molecule and humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes which are found inside the cell's nucleus so even with sophisticated lab equipment dna isn't easy to study and um, that's because a strand of it is about two nanometers wide um, that's smaller than a wavelength of light And researchers can use electron microscopes to observe the genetic material or x-rays like Rosalind Franklin did. Um, But even these tools paint a flawed picture. Um, The best method scientists have come up with to visualize DNA as it exists inside our cells is actually just by computer modeling. So by rendering a 3D image of a genome on a computer, we can see that DNA isn't just a bunch of free-floating squiggles. Uh, Most of the time, the strands sit tightly wound in a well-organized web inside the nucleus of a cell. And these balls of genes are efficient, packing 
two meters of DNA into a space just 10 millionths of a meter across. It's crazy. So uh, like fingerprints, genetic code is particular to an individual, which makes it a unique identifier in the absence of other information like modern dental records. So DNA, however, it is fragile and it breaks down over time. So like the human body itself, DNA decays with increasing rapidity in the presence of heat, water, sunlight, and oxygen. And those essential conditions of life also speed the process of death, uh, potentially rendering DNA useless for analysis in a matter of weeks. I'm just very conscious of I'm just very conscious right now. of the fact that I'm slowly killing myself by just being exposed just to be- light and air. <laughs> <laughs> this is you just oh my god. I'm, I'm you sorry. just explained aging and death to me and I on like a, a very like a visceral like level. Pro, you know. Oh my manner. gosh. I'm oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> my mortality is okay like free going? floating right now. Okay, <laughs> continue, please. Um, scientists have estimated that under the most ideal conditions, DNA could theoretically survive for a maximum of one million years. Oh, wow. So the oldest actual DNA samples hail from Greenland and were extracted from beneath a mile of ice. So basically that was perfect for DNA preservation. And these samples are between 450,000 to 800,000 years old. And they oh provide evidence of green life on the now largely barren landmass in Greenland. So that's just like life at all yeah. has been has been you know confirmed there um, and as far as human genetic material goes the record for oldest Neanderthal DNA is held by a 100,000 year old sample found in a Belgian cave oh my gosh that's so cool and the longest lasting sample of Homo sapiens DNA was discovered in northeastern Spain and boasts a survival age of 7,000 years In both cases, scientists were able to date the samples using mitochondrial DNA rather than the type found in the cell nucleus. The powerhouse of the cells. Mitochondrial DNA only contains partial genetic information, but it provides sufficient evidence for identification and is present in greater abundance than nuclear DNA, increasing its odds of surviving. Um, DNA sequencing. Um, it's technology that allows researchers to determine the order of bases in a DNA sequence. So the technology can be used to determine the order of bases in genes, chromosomes, or an entire genome. In 2000, uh, researchers completed the first full sequence of the human genome, according to a report by the National Human Genome Research Institute. And uh, DNA research has led to some interesting and important findings in the last few years. Uh, For example, a 2017 study published in the journal Science found that random mistakes in DNA, not hereditary or environmental factors, accounts for about two-thirds of cancer mutations in cells. What? So it's just like, it's it's a random mistake in your DNA. Oh my God. So no no matter what you do, so we get, I mean, I shouldn't say like, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. because obviously there are some environmental yeah, it, and it behavioral might just, factors. It might just happen. It may just be you were born to get colon cancer. It just happens. Yeah. Oh, it's- I, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. But my this genes. Is, but it's neat that they're finding this stuff out. That they're oh absolutely. You know that but- we've that it's and it's crazy that like in you know in the last twenty years only in the last twenty years yeah. have we known. How humans' genomes are sequenced. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> While like, Lauren's broken, I'm, I'm like short circuiting. 
Uh, modern genetic fingerprinting techniques need only a small sample of DNA, so even a discarded scrap of it, to read a person's unique genetic code. And since DNA sequencing came onto the scene, time is typically not a factor in catching a killer because officials usually sequence the DNA from a crime scene at the time of the crime or shortly thereafter. Oh so this way, they have the unique pattern ready to go when they need it when they need to compare it with a suspect's DNA. So sometimes police even freeze the DNA for future use or freeze dry it in a powder form, which is like crazy to think about. Um, And both methods allow them to keep DNA for, hypothetically, millions of years. Oh my gosh. But the collection of DNA itself can be time sensitive. That's the problem. So like they need to like collect it quickly. So because genetic material can be damaged with time if it isn't preserved properly and it can unravel or break down under heat and chemicals. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Contaminated. So yeah, in the last couple, you know, again, in the last couple of decades with the understanding of DNA and how it works, they've, they've learned that they need to collect this. Collect it right away. And then, and then they just have the data. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We are living in minority report right now. (laughs) I still haven't seen that. Oh, it's so good. I keep, I keep meaning to. It's, I've seen it again, again. I don't know why I see certain movies like multiple times and I see common movies never. Yeah. But I've seen Minority Report several times and it is the only Tom Cruise movie I can watch without hating his face. Yeah. And it's so, um, it was made in like 2002 or something like Mm -hmm. that. And it's still very, it holds up like the technology and like the special effects hold up. And it is just so fling and flang and good. Like good stories and good like settings and things. Yeah. Samantha Morton plays one of the precogs and she's like always shivering and crying oh and it's, oh, she's amazing and she's bald. So the police team who arrested the, I'm going to say alleged just because we have yeah, to, yeah, we don't want to yeah. get sued by the, you know, four people that listen to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, The police team who arrested the alleged Golden State Killer at the end of April this year used GED Match, which is a no-frills website that pools raw genetic profiles shared publicly by their owners. I heard about this. So people were like, oh, it was was DNA on Ancestry or something, and it was not. It was this... this uh, website that people publicly share the information with in order to match with other people. So according to the site's policy page, um, GED Match exists to provide DNA and genealogy tools for comparison and research services. So most of its tools for tracking down matches are free. Uh, Users just have to register and upload copies of their raw DNA files exported from genetic testing services like 23andMe and Ancestry. So those two companies don't allow law enforcement to act access their customer databases unless they get a court order. Uh, But no court order was needed to mine GED Match's open source database, which holds more than 650,000 genetically connected profiles. So using sequenced data determined from old crime scene samples, police created a genetic profile for their suspect and uploaded it to the free site. And the Sacramento Bee first reported that that gave them a pool of relatives who all shared some of that incriminating genetic material. So freaking cool and terrifying yeah then they could use other clues like age and sex and place of residence to rule out suspects yeah and eventually the search narrowed down to just joseph james d'angelo and to confirm their suspicions police staked out his citrus heights home and obtained his dna from something that he discarded then they ran it through the multiple crime scene samples and they were a match so in the end it wasn't fingerprints or stakeouts or cell phone records that caught this guy it was a genealogy website that's that's the tits. I love that. That's so cool. I can't wait. I've been like dying to hear more details. Yeah. Like, I'm so surprised that there hasn't been 
like interviews with his neighbors or like friends who went to high school with him. They, I bet they want to keep it all under wraps as much as possible until the trial so that it doesn't like influence the jury and all that stuff. So I'm sure that plenty of stuff is going to come out afterward. I mean, I'm, I am itching for like a seven part long form article on long form. You know, there will be where I'm going to like make myself a cup of coffee and eat a candy bar and just go to town on that. You know what I mean? I do that at work. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really interested to hear because since it w- he was gone for so long, there are so many questions about why he stopped yeah. and like why he started and how come he wasn't caught. And how yeah. sh- you know, I'm just speculating right now and everything, but like he's an old man now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they they said that like spree rapists and killers like um, like he did, they uh-huh. they're always very like in their twenties and early thirties yeah. because of their testosterone and all of that. So as oh they get older, gosh. they get more tired and they get more out of shape, and their testosterone isn't raging as much. And maybe they settle down and get married, and they just don't have the they, they don't, don't have don't like don't the have drive. Yeah. Wow. Ugh. Yeah. So Gross. that's how we got from <laughs> an Austrian monk studying pea shoots. To uh, the police capturing the Golden State Killer in Catching April one of the worst serial killers of the 20th century. Yeah. Damn. That was good. Thank you, Julia. That was great. Great. So uh, on a lighter note, my quiz is called The G Gnome Project. This is a quiz on gnomes and pop culture and words that start and end with the letter G. Start and end. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Question one. The roaming gnome, a red-hatted, blue-frocked statue, is the mascot for which online booking site that implores you to wander wisely? Question two. This recreational activity requires only a sense of adventure and a GPS receiver or GPS-enabled mobile device. What's the name of this popular outdoor activity where participants use GPS coordinates to both hide and find containers at specific locations all over the world? Question three, a 2011 animated romantic comedy starring James McAvoy and Emily Bunt as the star-crossed title characters took a departure from the William Shakespeare tragedy upon which it was based. Set aside your differences with your warring neighbors and name this love story about decorative lawn ornaments. Question four, a man, a plan... In the same vein as train spotting, the word gongoozling refers to the activity of watching what? Question five. The Smurfs, well known for their blue skin tone and charming woodland homes, each wear a distinctive soft conical cap, which actually signifies freedom. Also shown prominently on Marianne, a national symbol of the French Republic and personification of liberty and reason, what is the name for this type of headgear? Question six, a form of psychological manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group. What is the term for this strategy that ultimately makes the target question their own memory, perception, and sanity? Question seven, think back to the late 1980s Nickelodeon. In the animated children's television series, The World of David the Gnome, the voice of the title character, Gentle David the Gnome, was provided by which dulcet-toned actor who also starred in Happy Days, Murder, She Wrote, and Father Dowling Mysteries? Question 8. Three true or false statements on Punxsutawney's favorite animal, the groundhog. First, groundhogs and squirrels are part of the same family. Second, 
In captivity, groundhogs can live up to 85 years. Third, groundhogs are one of the few species of mammals that enters into true hibernation during the winter. Question nine. Phase one, collect, redacted. Phase two, question mark. Phase three, profit. This oft-parodied three-phase business plan is provided by which group of tiny creatures in a famous second season episode of South Park? And finally, question 10. William Jennings Bryan probably wasn't a fan of this prize-winning short story by Edgar Allan Poe, which follows William Legrand, recently bitten by an insect, and two acquaintances as they decipher a secret message that will lead them to Captain Kidd's treasure. What's the title of this 1843 work that helped to popularize cryptography with the general public? We'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers. GCAT, yeah, you can all thank me. Took some x-rays, a scope, and a laboratory. And they're saying those two dudes from Cambridge made this discovery. You're welcome for stealing my science picks. So that data came from my assistant and me Some call me a genius, I can't disagree You guys were wrong and we didn't get along My work was strong And I figured out the double helix And do you know who the fuck I am? Yeah, do you know who the fuck I am? Do you know who the fuck I am? I am photograph 51 taking Rosalind fucking Franklin. All right, and we're back. Oh my God. <laughs> Julia, that song was so good. <laughs> now, okay, to be fair, I don't, I have not listened to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Alex, add that to the list. And I haven't heard any of the Hamilton drops, but you did play me the song before this. That was so good. That was so good. <laughs> so that yeah, was so if you haven't listened to um, Ben Franklin's song, which was one of the Hamel drops um, from the end of 2017, it, uh, the Decemberists sing it, and it's and it's so good. It oh like really gosh. pumps me up. And um, wh- while researching Roslyn Franklin, this really got me like you really. Can I just say you really missed your calling as a lyricist, as a, as a parody songwriter, as a parody song lyricist. <laughs> You would have given Weird Al a run for his money. I'm just saying. There's still time. Yeah. Can... No. Yeah. You're still in your 30s. Yeah. Let's do this. I'll. I don't know. I'll be your hype man, just like I am with everything else. Yeah. I'm just like she's so good. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. Oh well, on to the quiz. On to the quiz. <laughs> okay. Go so uh, this this the Genome Project is a quiz on gnomes in pop culture and words that start and end with the letter G. All right, question one. The roaming gnome, a red-hatted, blue-frocked statue, is the mascot for which online booking site that implores you to wander wisely? That's Travelocity. It is. Um, And you can find this roaming gnome on Twitter at Roaming Gnome. Oh. And he posts pictures from all over the world. It's kind of (laughs) cool. Still going. Still going. Good. 
Uh, question two, this recreational activity requires only a sense of adventure and a GPS receiver or GPS enabled mobile device. What's the name of this popular outdoor activity where participants use GPS coordinates to both hide and find containers at specific locations all over the world? That is geocaching. Yes. So um, the first documented placement of a GPS located cache took place on May 3rd, 2000 by Dave Ulmer of Beaver Creek, Oregon. The location was posted on a Usenet news group. Um, And by May 6th, 2000, so just three days later, it had been found twice and logged once. And according to Ulmer's message, this cache was a black plastic bucket that was partially buried and contained software, videos, books, money, a can of beans, and a slingshot. Uh, Everything you need. Yeah. (laughs) You always need those beans. Uh, The geocache and most of its contents were eventually destroyed by a lawnmower, but the can of beans was salvaged and it was turned into a trackable item called the original can of beans. That's so cute. I think that is still out there for budding geocachers. I uh, I learned about geocaching as I learned about a lot of things because of an episode of Law and Order. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it was like a in New York City. Like, yeah, it was dumb. Um, it was a group of of like young professionals who were super into geocaching, and then one of them like gets murdered, and it was the leader who killed him and all that stuff. So wow, yeah. Watch that Law and Order, you guys. Yeah, you learn a lot. Question three, a 2011 animated romantic comedy starring James McAvoy and Emily Blunt as the star-crossed title characters took a departure from the William Shakespeare tragedy upon which it was based. Set aside your differences with your warring neighbors and name this love story about decorative lawn ornaments. I am you got upset it? that I know this. Yeah. It's called Nomeo and Juliet. It is. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite things I've ever read on a Wikipedia article <laughs> comes from this entry under Nomeo and Juliet. Oh There's a God. section that says under differences from the 1597 tragedy no. by William Shakespeare <laughs> includes the sentence. The characters are all gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you. Thank you for your clarification. Um, also, Elton John has nine of the 14 songs on the movie soundtrack. I heard about that. And he was the executive producer. Like, he was all, he went all in. It, I mean, the cast oh, list yeah. is top is notch. Top notch. And there was a sequel to it this spring that was released called what? Sherlock Gnomes. Like, you oh would think gosh. that, like, they wouldn't be related, but, like, Nomeo and Juliet show up in Sherlock Gnomes. Um, That's not cute. Yeah, it didn't do great. <laughs> I, I don't mean, know if there's going to be a... Another one. installation. Oh my God. But um, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Oh my God. Uh, question four. A man, a plan. In the same vein as train spotting, the word gone goozling refers to the activity of watching what? I'm assuming like ships or boats. Yes. The answer okay. is canals or more loosely boats. Okay. So a gone goozler is gone a person goozle. who enjoys watching activity on the canals of the United Kingdom. Oh, uh, wow. The term is also used more generally to describe those who harbor an interest in canals and canal life, but do not actively participate. <laughs> so if you're on a boat in a Aww. canal, you're not, you not a gone goozler. No. But if you're just sitting there and watching the boats go by in the canal, you are a gone goozler. Wow. So, um... This uh, term possibly arose from the Lincolnshire dialect in England, um, in which the words gone and goose both mean to stare or gape. Um, And it was popularized um, by an author in The Narrow Boat, a book on canal life in 1944. It's a it's a tremendous word. Oh, 
Of course. G-O-N-G-O-O-Z-L-I-N-G. It's in the annals of the English language. That is a, that is it's a, a gem. It's a great word. It's great. Question five. The Smurfs, well known for their blue skin tone and charming woodland homes, each wear a distinctive soft conical cap, which actually signifies freedom. Also shown prominently on Marianne, a national symbol of the French Republic and personification of liberty and reason, what is the name for this type of headgear? Is that called a Phrygian cap? It is a Phrygian cap. Boom. Art history. Boom. Bam. Boom. 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 So Phrygian caps are used in the coat of arms of certain republics or of Republican state institutions in the place where otherwise a crown would be used. Um, it it came to be identified as a symbol of the Republican form of government. Um, so it, I don't really know how it ended up on the Smurfs, but I'm going to tell you some more info about the Smurfs. Um, so the word schrumpf. Um, it's Is that pre- a word? <laughs> strumpf. Okay. Um, it is pronounced like the German word strumpf, meaning sock. Um, however, according to the creator of the Smurfs, um, the original term and the accompanying language of the Smurfs came during a meal that he was having with his colleague and friend, André Franquin, at the Belgian coast. So having momentarily forgotten the word salt, Peo asked Franquin in French to pass the strumpf. And Franquin jokingly replied, here's the strumpf when you are done strumpfing, strumpf. Stroomf it back. And the two spent the rest of that weekend speaking in Stroomf language. <laughs> so the name was later translated into Dutch as Smurf, which was adopted in English. So that's like if we... If you and I got drunk, which we do, <laughs> and we just thought something was funny, and we just, for the rest of the weekend, we drove Steve and Josh absolutely insane yeah. by just saying guamins. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and, and then, then over we and create over again. a best-selling, long-running... <laughs> comic book series yep, and, and animated series and show. toy line and movies based on Gormans. <laughs> <laughs> there are dumber things. Clearly. <laughs> Man, we should have... Uh, there's still time. We can turn Gormans into something. Into something. It'll be good. <laughs> <sighs> Question six. A form of psychological manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group. What is the term for this strategy that ultimately makes the target question their own memory, perception, and sanity? That is called gaslighting. It is. Uh, so the term owes its origin to the 1938 Patrick Hamilton play Gaslight and its 1940 and 1944 film adaptations. In the story, a husband attempts to convince his wife and others that she is insane by manipulating small elements of their environment and insisting that she's mistaken, remembering things incorrectly or delusional when she points out these changes. Uh, so the husband was... Um uh, the original title of this uh-huh. uh, came from the husband dimming the gas lights in the house. Yes. So... Um, when the husband was in the flat, like above them, the gas lights would dim because he was like upstairs using their lights, looking for the jewels that belonged to a woman that he had murdered. Sorry, spoiler alert for this 80 year old <laughs> work. Movie. Um, and then the wife correctly notices the dimming lights and discusses it with her husband. But he insists that she merely imagined a change in the level of illumination. And that's where the term comes from. I've seen the movie with um, what's her name? Swedish actress she was in oh, Ingrid Bergman Ingrid Bergman she's beautiful in the film the costumes are great because um, I was on TCM one day and I was like let's watch this yeah uh, it's excellent it's a really good uh, you know usually old movies like the like scary parts or like the thrilling parts are kind of not 
kind of diminished yeah. because of time, just like you've heard the story over and over again. But it's actually really exciting. Like the whole time you're like, no, get out of there. Like, yeah. Believe, believe yourself. Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend it's very, very good. And I feel like this term gets thrown about these days. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but maybe people don't know the origin of it. Yeah. It's a good movie. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, question seven. Think back to late 1980s Nickelodeon. In the animated children's television series, The World of David the Gnome, the voice of the title character was provided by which dulcet-toned actor who also starred in Happy Days, Murder, She Wrote, and Father Dowling Mysteries? Happy Days? Mm-hmm. Ron Howard? <laughs> no, it's Tom Bosley. Oh, Tom Bosley! Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... The show, it was an English dub of a Spanish cartoon based on a Dutch book. Get out. And there were 26 episodes only. Um, so the titular gnome, David, he is 399 years old, making him the oldest gnome around. And apparently oh. gnomes only live to exactly 400 years. Oh, no. So we, ha- we only had a small a amount of time, time with David. Um, so he's a doctor and he uses his knowledge of many fields, such as hypnosis and acupuncture, to heal his patients, who are usually animals, um, including his faithful friend, Swift the Fox. And his wife's name is Lisa. <laughs> Just very <laughs> Which like, is just a that's a that's a lady it's a name. Regular name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Tom Bosley was the voice of David oh, okay. the Gnome. See, I had never seen I had heard of David the Gnome as an adult, mm. but I think I was too young to watch okay. it. Considering it ran for such yeah. a short time. Yeah. I don't think I ever got a chance to see it. Mm. It's pleasant. Is it? Okay. It's very soothing. Good to know. Uh question eight. Three true or false statements on Punxsutawney's favorite animal, the groundhog. You ready? You're right. Yeah, I'm ready. Here First, we go. Groundhogs and squirrels are part of the same family. Uh, true. Yes, yes, true. They are both from the family Scuridae. This includes small or medium-sized rodents. Uh, the squirrel family includes tree squirrels, ground squirrels, chipmunks, marmots, including woodchucks, uh, flying squirrels, and prairie dogs, among other rodents. Oh, okay. So they're all related. Uh, second, in captivity, groundhogs can live up to 85 years. I'm going to say False. False. Yes. They actually have only a two to three year average lifespan oh in the wild with gosh. some up to six years. But in captivity, the, they really only can live up to like 14 years old. Oh. So, yeah. Poor little And dudes. third, groundhogs are one of the few species of mammals that enters into true hibernation during the winter. I'm going to say false. Ah, it's true. Oh, poop. It's true. So to survive the winter, um, groundhogs build a separate winter burrow and are at their maximum weight shortly before entering hibernation. In most areas, groundhogs hibernate from October to March or April, but in more temperate areas, they may hibernate as little as three months. Uh, when the groundhog enters hibernation, there's a drop in body temperature to as low as 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Heart rate falls to four to 10 beats per minute and breathing rate falls to one breath every six minutes. Wow. Um, Interestingly enough, bears are not true hibernators. I did hear this. Um, They are more like light hibernators. Instead of hibernating, bears go into what is called a torpor. So the main difference between a torpor and a hibernation is that during torpor, the animal is easily woken. So you're supposed to tread lightly near a bear's den um, because it will wake up even if you think it's asleep. Um, Bears go into a torpor during the winter months only if they live in cold areas. And during their torpor, they don't eat or drink for about six months on average. But... Female bears can completely give birth to and nurse their young during torpor. So what? they could. Oh man, that's wake great! Up and <laughs> wake up and you're like, oh. have like a six month old cub. Isn't that crazy? You're like, you don't even have a name yet. I've been asleep the whole time. Oh man, that's what I want. Yeah. Put me in a torpor. I'm like, why isn't Twilight sleep still a thing? 
Oh man, I know, right? Knock me out for the first year and a half. That's fine with me. Um, so wait a second. So since Puxatani Phil is for all intents and yeah, purposes, they're waking him up. We drag his ass, drag out, of his his ass out of bed. Yeah. No wonder he's always biting people. Leave him alone. Yeah. It's not a real thing, guys. It's Six not. weeks of winter leads to the first day of spring. Look at a calendar. <laughs> Man. Poor Phil. That's animal abuse. <laughs> Poor guy. Question nine. Yes. Phase one, collect, redacted. Phase two, question mark. Phase three, profit. This off-parodied three-phase business plan is provided by which group of tiny creatures in a famous second season episode of South Park? I don't know. I've never watched it. It's They're the underpants show. gnomes. No. Sorry. You don't know? No. I, I don't think I've watched a single episode of South Park just I think on it's, principle. But it, like, it's, in, it's in the zeitgeist. Phase one. Well, I mean, I've heard of that. Yeah. But I didn't know that it was mm-hmm. part of South Park. I thought it was like a Twitter thing. Yeah. So their their plan is phase one, collect underpants. Phase two, question, question mark. mark. Phase three, profit. Okay, that's pretty um, funny. So the underpants <laughs> gnomes are small humanoid creatures that travel the world stealing underpants. Uh, despite the gnomes plan being somewhat lacking in certain areas, they are apparently very intelligent in regards to economics and business. <laughs> and they teach the main characters about big corporations. So wait, are they the ones that have like, they look like cut paper and their mouths are like, bah, 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 like, are those, uh, them? those are Canadians in, in the South Park oh, universe. The, the Canadians look like half eggs. Oh, okay. No, the underpants gnomes are gnomes. They're tiny. They just look like gnomes. And they have a song. It's like, work all day, work all night. Where are the underpants gnomes? They're real cute. Are early they? South Park. I was a fan of early South Park. What? Yeah. I'm learning so much about uh, you. I just, I thought it was gross. Hold on. I'm getting a picture. All right. They're okay. Yeah, right. They're fine. and finally question 10 William Jennings Bryant probably wasn't a fan of this prize winning short story by Edgar Allan Poe which follows William Legrand recently bitten by an insect and two acquaintances as they decipher a secret message that will lead them to Captain Kidd's treasure what's the title of this 1843 work that helped to popularize cryptography with the general public I, I don't know I'm assuming it starts with a G and ends with a G yes Grimling growing i'm just gonna i'm just okay. gonna do verbs gold bug gold bug uh-huh. is that what you just said yes i have never heard of that before ah. in my life well it's a very popular 1843 <laughs> short story by Edgar Allan poe um i think Add it, it was actually he wrote it um there was like a, a story contest with like a philadelphia newspaper oh, and okay. he wrote it and he won like a thousand dollars for the contest Ooh, and that's that was a lot. published in the newspaper yeah um so william f friedman who was um in the 20th century america's foremost cryptologist said that he initially became interested in cryptography after oh. reading the gold bug as a child an interest that he later put to use in deciphering japan's purple code during world war ii what? Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, yeah, it sounds like a good story. All right. I'll, I yeah. mean, it's probably in the in the yeah, public like domain him. now. I can yeah, like Google it, it yes, and find it a PDF. Mm-hmm. I did that um, with a uh, with a Mary Shelley story. Uh-huh. It was. It's like I forgot the name of it, but it's a woman's name, and it's the one about incest. <clears throat> I mean, it's not about incest. Ooh. Well, it's about incest. So, like the main character, her father falls in love with her. And she's like, no, dad, don't. Matilda? Matilda, that's it. I read the whole thing. It was on PDF because it's because <clears throat> it's in the public domain now. And it was because uh, Daniel Mallory Ortberg was writing about it. Oh, okay. 
And he was, he, it was part of his, one of his emails mm-hmm. that he puts out, the Shatner Chatner. Yeah. And he was like, it's the only Mary Shelley story that I like because it has the incest part and it's like super like overwrought. Like okay. it's very dramatic. Like most yeah. stuff Gothic. of that time period. Yeah. Gothic stuff. So I was like, all right, I got time. It's a short story. Boop to boop. It was like, I mean, sure. The incest parts were interesting, I guess. Now again, there is no, no incest. 50% of this podcast does not condone. <laughs> no, a hundred percent of this podcast does not condone incest. It's what's interesting is like, she like loses touch with her father because her mother dies when she's a child. And then she meets up with him because she always wanted a, a father in her life. And then he takes her all over London and she's so happy. And you know, Gothic fiction is so overwrought mm-hmm. and, I like Jane Eyre because it's like ghosty gothic fiction. Mm. But this was like, my visage was golden with love. And I said, father, look upon me. Look at my eyes filled with tears. He turned away. His brow furrowed and his She's teeth not gnashing. reading from anything. No, she's, I'm not. She's pulling this. I'm pulling this. Of her yeah. Soul. So it was just like, we get it. You're upset. <laughs> like, ugh, ugh. dad's in love with you. Get, we get it. And then she like commits suicide. She's oh like, my boy. dad loves me. I can't live on this earth. It's like, this is not a you problem. This is a dad problem. So you you are fine. Dad needs we, to deal with stuff. How did we stuff. get here? What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, public domain. Look up Matilda. Great. Or don't. It's fine. Or don't. Lauren told you everything. I told you basically all the interesting parts. Oh, man. The rest of it is just like her getting sick and then she gets better and then she gets brain fever. And it's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man. So we have some <laughs> listener updates. Oh, actually. yeah. Okay. So uh, back in the um, Genghis Khan episode, we, <laughs> a great episode. we talked a lot about yaks and yak cheese. And we said, if anybody's ever had yak cheese, please get in touch with us. So um, Hillary E., she um, has had yak cheese. She says it is salty like Vermont cheddar. Ooh. And she also says that mare's milk cheese from Mongolia is slightly sour like goat cheese. And camel milk cheese from Mongolia is another interesting gamey cheese. Gamey. And she also says, I can imagine Lauren making barf gag noises now. <laughs> And um, we got a great email from another listener, Ariel W. um, And she said that while she hasn't had yak cheese, um, she did get to taste some Kurt in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. So Kurt is a dry, salty cheese made from fermented horse milk. What? And it's a popular snack there, especially (laughs) among children. Uh, She says it's very dry and very, 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 very salty. She then sent us a great um, link to a Atlas Obscura post about Kurt. That's cool. Thank you, Ariel. And thank you, Hillary, for for, <laughs> for sharing your experiences yeah, with for us. Hearing, for hearkening the call and being like, no, I'm going to share my experience with non-cow's milk cheeses. And we appreciate that. And now uh, I don't have to try it. So if um, you want to get in touch with us and let us know any other if you've ever had yaks cheese yeah, or I mean, still um, anything else interesting that you've eaten or any topics that you want to suggest to us, um, you can find us on the internet at www.missinfopod.com. You can email us at missinfopod at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at missinfopod and you can find us on Facebook or misinformation, a trivia podcast. Yep. And if you want to hear more of us just talking into microphones. Yeah. Uh, and sharing some information, um, you can get us on iTunes, 
Google Play, Stitcher, or uh, use our RSS feed for any uh, podcast app that you prefer. And tell a friend. Yeah, tell a friend. Be like, hey, if you like a couple of girls like yelling and laughing in your ear, you should listen to misinformation. <laughs> you'll learn a lot, too. Yeah, you'll also learn we a lot. Try. I don't mean to besmeager my own podcast, but... Anyway, uh, thank you all for uh, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.